This podcast may contain explicit language. Welcome to the Greatest Movie of All Time podcast, the show that uses a unique grading style to redefine what the greatest movies are. I'm Tom Duncan. And I'm Dana Duncan. Tonight, we apply our patent-pending Stanley rubric. By the way, when are we going to get that fixed? To the first of three films we're going to cover for Black History Month, and also the film most often cited as the race relations film, Do the Right Thing, from 1989, directed and written by Spike Lee, starring Spike Lee, Rosie Perez, Danny Aiello, John Turturro, and Ossie Davis. However, quickly before we get to the show... Next week, we will welcome back our most often recurring guest to the show, my mother, Chris Duncan, to help with our second Black History Month film and to celebrate the late Sidney Poitier with Guess Who's Coming to Dinner from 1967, directed by Stanley Kramer, starring Sidney Poitier, Spencer Tracy, and Katherine Hepburn. You won't want to miss that one, so watch ahead of the show by searching the Real Good app to find where it's streaming for you. That's R-E-E-L-G-O-O-D. Also, you can still sign up for our weekly newsletter either by the website in the show notes, you can subscribe at the bottom of every page, or you can email us at greatestalltimemoviepodcast at gmail.com. You can also find us on Instagram, Twitter, and now TikTok at the handle at gmotepodcast. That's G-M-O-A-T podcast. Additionally, did you know that in the episode descriptions of every episode, we put links to take you right to either the notes for that specific episode or to the full ranked and graded list of movies we've covered so far. Just open up the episode, and you can find them right there to get more information on the show. Then, as we announced in the preview of Season 3 episode, we are taking the month of March this year to do another full trilogy, and you can help us decide. We're going to be putting up a Twitter poll, and actually have already put one up as of today, on our profile, at Podcast to pick between four favorite film franchises to cover this March. You can pick between the Jason Bourne trilogy, the Austin Powers trilogy, the Naked Gun trilogy, or the Oceans trilogy. If you don't have Twitter but would like to participate, write us at greatestalltimemoviepodcast at gmail.com with your vote. Currently, the leading vote-getter is the Oceans trilogy. And, as always, please like, follow, rate, and review the show on whichever podcast platform you use. We would really appreciate it. All right, so... We are going to attempt something that we've only done once, and I thought we did it kind of clumsily when we did the help. I think (laughs) it's one of our lowest rated episodes, but with good reason. We literally did a movie that was deemed a white savior movie that most of the cast has kind of, after the fact, gone away from, or at least not supported in its essence after they're done or this many years later. Notably, Viola Davis is very anti the help at this point. And we did it the week after George Floyd. So, yeah, (laughs) context-wise, our track record on diversity and uh, inclusion are not particularly great. But I'll just put this disclaimer at the top. I will not pretend that I am culturally sensitive enough to probably get everything we are about to discuss with this movie correct, or that I will even know if there's a genuine correct way to discuss these matters. All I'm going to promise you is that we're going to try to have the best conversation we can about a subject, experience, and culture that we can only appreciate as third parties, and I hope that if we are wrong, 
or that we are blind to something, that you will extend us some patience and understanding as we try to learn and grasp the difficult subject matter in movies like these, given that I don't expect us to fully comprehend all of this on our first try. But we will try our best. If you think that there is something we need to know, if you are a fan of the show and there's a particular angle that you thought we didn't handle correctly, please write us at greatestalltimemoviepodcast at gmail.com on any of our social feeds. I'll be more than happy to correct something, talk about it further, make any necessary corrections on air, or give this any space it needs. Because, And again, I made this remark kind of tongue-in-cheek last week during our 100th episode, but we're two white guys, one of us middle-aged and the other one slowly advancing towards middle age, who have had nothing but privilege in this country at different times, and especially myself. You came from a slightly different background, but provided a lot more advantages to me by the time it was my turn. And we have really no semblance or understanding of what it is to be a minority in this country. You maybe have at least a little bit closer secondhand experience, but the fact that most of the my life was spent in a community where you maybe had 1% diversity, and most of the time that was people of Hmong or Asian descent. You'd occasionally have an adopted minority child within the school district. Kind of speaks to, I've been in a lot of white communities for the majority of my life, and so trying to expand my horizons on something like this is something I can only appreciate as a bystander. Well, I grew up in a community that was about a third African-American had about, at the time I was there, about 5% Hispanic. So it was about 40% minority. That's where I grew up. I had friends or had groups of friends that were various ethnic origin. It wasn't something that you regularly thought about. So I have some experience in dealing with multicultural situations, but I am by far limited in my understanding of what exactly is going on and what the feelings are and the potential anger, rage, discomfort that exists. I I couldn't, uh, and, and if I said that I have some vague idea, boy, would that be stupid because I don't. Well, the other thing I don't want to do in this discussion is address it like it's a monolith that all people or all minorities, black people, have the same desire or goal of what equality or justice is. Because I don't think that's a uniform opinion. I also won't necessarily say that this movie is particularly diversified in its approach. It really presents maybe one or two ethnic groups legitimately. I don't know if it gives a lot of great service to Italian-Americans in this. I do think there are somewhat caricatures to a certain extent. I don't think this movie does well with Koreans in the Korean grocery store owner, but at least it's making an attempt. And the reason for doing a film like this is not only that we recognize that other people appreciate its greatness, and I think you and I both can appreciate its greatness in at least showing in a fictionalized version an incident that has become all too common in this country currently, 
and that is just as relevant now as it was in 1989. I would actually argue possibly even more because of the recent events and the fact that we've gotten to see some of this with our own eyes instead of an actual fictionalized version. But then additionally, that we have to at least be willing to talk about it, learn and try and understand the perspective of others, not only just to grow ourselves, but to allow other people into the discussion. And only by trying to start are you going to get anywhere. Again, I will stress, in no way are we going to get this right or perfect off the bat. But just the attempt, I think, is valuable enough, even if we do screw up. Well, let's just put it this way. This was a conversation that was being had in 1981 and 82 while I was in high school. The notice was going on at that time that at the high school basketball games, the Beloit Purple Knights, all the black kids sat in one section, all the white kids sat in another section. It wasn't by design. It wasn't by some sort of legality. It's just the way it was. And for the same point, you know, lunchrooms were ethnically divided. And again, it was because of relationships. And there were a few that traversed the two groups, but not that many. And it wasn't like we purposefully excluded. It's just the way things were. I can't articulate it any differently than that. I, I don't know. It, it, it wasn't something we thought about. Now, by 1984, I was a young 20, 21-year-old, and I was on the Blake Public School Board. And uh, at that time, we had a problem because the neighborhoods in Beloit were very, and I wouldn't say purposefully segregated, but you could you could look at a map of Beloit and I could pretty much draw boxes around certain neighborhoods that were African-American, some that were Hispanic, and those that were not. You just did, and you didn't, it wasn't like you thought about it or it was just a reality. Uh, and I don't understand yet to this day why that was the case. But because of that and the fact that we had neighbors... I'll tell you exactly why it was the case. Home values. There is a systemic nature to how money was lended for certain homes in certain neighborhoods. And that, yes, you kind of stuck around your specific pods... But there is a matter of whether you necessarily noticed or not, but a level of segregation that was natural and part of everything that was going on. I mean, you talked about the fact that Janesville was segregated, Janesville, Wisconsin, terribly for into the 90s. So, oh, yes. I mean, that was just the simple fact was, is it was redlined, which is any realtor sold to any minority was driven out of business. So you just did not even deal with it. But Beloit has a different feel. For example, one of the neighborhoods, it started during World War I. We had uh, more or had Fairbanks Morris made engines and locomotives and diesel parts and all this stuff. And during World War I, because there was a shortage of labor because of the soldiers joining the army, 
the Fairbanks Morris went down to Mississippi and recruited entire family structures to come up. And there was about seven to ten families. And if you look at Boyd, probably about, at least while I was in high school, I think I wanted to say there were about seven to ten families comprised about 40% of the population, African-American population of Beloit. Um, they were all descendants of. And what they did was is they all located within two to four blocks of the Fairbanks Morris plant. But I'm pretty sure that was probably by design. I mean, we're talking about an era that's responsible for the Tulsa massacre. Well, and again, I don't know all this, but I can tell I, you. I know you can't prove it, but the fact remains that it's more likely than not that there were certain designs, because I can guarantee you these black families were not being asked to live as neighbors to the plant owners. Correct. And I can tell you also that a very prominent family, a very prominent business within the community ended up being the grand dragon of the uh, local chapter of the Ku Klux Klan in the 1920s in response to this influx of uh, blacks from uh, Mississippi. None of that is surprising, but all right. So I'm going to ask you somewhat of an odd question. When is the first time that you really knew or at least had some confrontation with police brutality? Is it Rodney King? No, 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 no. When I was in college, I worked, uh, you know, as my student job because I had, you know, I didn't, I had to work while I was in college. So I had a student job. And I worked security. First, I worked as a dispatcher in the office. And I actually thought it would be interesting to go out and do the student guards. And I identified a, a subject who was trying to break into cars on campus. And um, I and one of the security guards followed him. And we called Beloit PD. And Beloit PD arrested him. And that was the first point I experienced or watched police brutality. And what it was, was is an African-American who was somewhat resisting, and it was two African-American police officers who were responding. And I'm going to be honest, they beat the shit out of them. It's to the point where I was standing there with my mouth open going, I've never seen this. I've only heard about stuff like this and could not believe it. They're cracking him with nightsticks. They're trying to restrain him, and they ultimately grab him and get him in cuffs and proceed to purposely drive his head into the, the door frame, putting him into the rear end of the car to the point where he was, if he didn't have a concussion, I was surprised because that way they were going to subdue him enough to get him into the station. And I remember turning to the other security guard who was... 15 years older than me and who had been in law enforcement. And I said, um, don't say a word. Pretend that you never saw it. Walk away and forget it. And I remember to this day him saying that. And I'm like, uh, okay. And that's going to be 1985, maybe. Okay. From a national standpoint, though, when we've had so many different triggering events, Eric Garner, Philando Castillo, obviously notably George Floyd, 
when is the point where it seemed like the national consciousness was aware of this as a lightning rod issue? After I graduated from law school and we were married, and you were born shortly after, we had a house not far from the Beloit College campus where I had been a student. And there was not far away in the Five Points, uh, Prairie Avenue, Woodward, and I can't remember, the uh, Park Avenue. There was a video store. You know, you rented VHS tapes at that time. And you would have been a baby. And it was right after we moved, like two weeks, three weeks, after we had moved from Beloit and went to another city, Rodney King took place. And there was a riot in Beloit, and it took place within the neighborhood where we lived. And the video store where we have was burned down. So that's my first real experience with national situations. Okay, so let's circle back around to the film then. I know you hadn't watched this film before. I had only watched it about two years ago during the summer post-George Floyd. But... What do you remember, if anything, about the conversation around this movie in 89? Well, I I have a hard time because you have to understand. 1989, I was trying to finish law school and get a job. I was newly married. I didn't have any money, so I wasn't going to the movie theaters. Uh, I had very limited things. So I don't know a whole lot. I, I remember the general conversation because one of the things I did do was watch uh, Siskel and Ebert at the movies. I know both really loved the film, but I did not see it. I did not hear about it. It was not something that was in the conversation because I was living within a bubble at the time, and I'll admit that. And so it was not something that was on my consciousness at the time. At that time, I'm limited. It's not like I'm having a lot of conversations with people outside of my law school and or your mother's college fraternity. I just didn't because I didn't have a whole lot of extra time. So I had a very limited space of where I was and what I was doing. And so there was very few things that I did and people that I had conversations with. Let's actually discuss the movie then. Do you have a plot summary ready for us? I do. On an extremely hot day, tempers flare in a predominantly black neighborhood in New York City, centered around Sal's famous pizzeria, run by an Italian-American dad, Sal, played by Danny Aiello, and his two sons, John DeTuro and Richard Edson, with their neighborhood delivery man, Mookie, Spike Lee. Even though the neighborhood loves the pizza, and Sal seems to love the neighborhood, All does not seem quite right as racial tensions and misunderstandings flare hotter than the temperature. Cast for this movie, Spike Lee as Mookie, also the writer and director. Danny Aiello as Sal. Ossie Davis as Demare. Ruby Dee as Mother Sister. Giancarlo Esposito as Buggin' Out. Bill Nunn as Radio Raheem. John Turturro as Pino. Richard Edson as Vito. Roger Guinevere Smith as Smiley, Rosie Perez as Tina, Joy Lee as Jade, I hope I got that pronunciation correct, Steve White as Ahmad, I don't think I had any problems with that one, Martin Lawrence as C, Leonard L. Thomas as Punchy, Krista Rivers as Ella, Robin Harris as Sweet Dick Willie, Paul Benjamin as ML, 
Frankie Faison as Coconut Sid, and Samuel L. Jackson as Mr. Senor Love Daddy, although he says Senor. Recognition for this movie. The movie was nominated for two Academy Awards for Best Supporting Actor, Danny Aiello, and for Best Original Screenplay for Spike Lee. Spike Lee would go on to win the award for Best Original Screenplay for Black Klansman, I believe in 2018, maybe 2019. AFI's 100 Years 100 Songs Fight the Power was number 40 on their list. On their 10th anniversary edition of 100 Years 100 Movies, this ranked as the 96th movie of all time. In 1999, it was selected for preservation in the National Film Registry. In June 2006, Entertainment Weekly magazine placed Do the Right Thing at number 22 on its list of the 25 most controversial movies ever. During the 2021 Cannes Film Festival award ceremony, Chaz Ebert, the wife of the late film critic Roger Ebert, noted that her husband had been appalled that the film had not received any awards from the Cannes jury in 1989 and had even threatened to boycott the festival as a result, while Spike Lee noted that the U.S. press at the time thought the film, quote, would start race riots all across America. Drawing a loud applause from attending press, he pointed to the continued relevance of the film's story more than three decades on, saying, quote, you would think and hope that 30-something motherfucking years later, that black people would have stopped being hunted down like animals, end quote. Did you know? During the 1990 Oscar ceremony, when announcing the Best Picture nominees, Kim Basinger caused some controversy when she ignored her scripted text and said, quote, We've got five great films here, and they're great for one reason, because they tell the truth. But there's one film missing from this list that deserves to be on it, because ironically, it might tell the biggest truth of all, and that's do the right thing. Spike Lee would later thank her for it in a 2019 episode of the podcast, Unspooled. Did you know? Spike Lee originally wanted Robert De Niro for the role of Sal Frangione, but De Niro turned down the part, saying that it was too similar to many of the parts he had played in the past. In the end, the part went to Danny Aiello. Did you know? The key scene where Danny Aiello and John Turturro talk alone, approximately midway through the film, was partly improvised. The script scene ended as the character Smiley approached the window. Everything after that, until the end of the scene, was completely ad-lib. Did you know? According to Spike Lee, the casting of Rosie Perez came about during a birthday party he was hosting in a club in L.A. When the R&B song Da Butt by Experience Unlimited from Lee's previous movie School Days from 1988 started playing, a spontaneous butt contest was held. Lee saw Perez dancing on top of a speaker and told her to come down, fearing that she would fall off and hurt herself and he would get sued. Security had to step in to force Perez down, after which she profusely cursed at Lee. Lee was in awe of her voice and quickly learned that they were both from the same part of Brooklyn. He offered her the part of Mookie's girlfriend on the spot, deciding that she would be Puerto Rican. Did you know? This film was inspired by an actual incident in New York City where some black youths were chased out of a pizzeria by some white youths in a section of New York City known as Howard Beach, which is chanted in the climactic scene of the movie. Did you know? According to former President Barack Obama at a fundraiser in New York City, he and First Lady Michelle Obama saw the movie on their first date in 1989, though they were also planning on seeing Driving Miss Daisy. Spike Lee later joked that their relationship would probably not have happened if Barack had chosen the latter. <laughs> Did you know? 
The opening dance sequence with Rosie Perez was inspired by the opening credit sequence with Anne Margaret in Bye Bye Birdie, 1963. Did you know? Lawrence Fishburne was offered but turned down the role of Radio Raheem. Did you know? The character of Smiley was not originally in the script. Roger Guinevere Smith approached Spike Lee requesting a role and his scenes were added in during shooting. Did you know? The title comes from Malcolm X's quotation that goes, you've got to do the right thing. All right, we'll take a quick break and we will be right back. All right, thank you for rejoining us. Dad, what would be the elevator pitch for this movie? A flashpoint with the continuous struggle of racism, misunderstanding, and anger. I think you and I kind of focus on the same things. It's primarily the combustible nature of how the movie ends more than anything else, because I do think that it has kind of that downward momentum to its climax. I went with a melting pot neighborhood becomes just that, as the heat turns up on a warm summer day that soon ignites the previously simmering racial tensions. Well, and this is what makes this film so intriguing, is the fact that it is not a point-counterpoint. There's subtleties here, because... Even the people who are, or the white people have certain relationships and feelings towards the blacks, and the blacks have certain feelings and relationships towards the whites. It would be so easy for a film like this to be diametrically opposed. And what it does is it creates nuances where it's not so cut and dried. And that's what makes it so tragic. There's certain aspects from both sides that you have sympathy or an empathy for, and you can't understand exactly why it exploded to this extent. I would say actually one of the more interesting and unique parts of this movie is where they take, I don't know, is it 30 seconds out? And they really just rip off about five or six character profiles where they're just saying really slanted racist remarks. And I'm trying to be careful about how I flavor that. But, I mean, realistically, Mookie is trying to say something, I think, that's anti-Italian-American. Pino is saying something that is blatantly anti-African-American. Somebody in there is making a comment against the Korean-American, et cetera, et cetera. I think there's like five or six different epitaphs where it's just, it sounds kind of like the vagina monologues of racial epithets. Yeah. But the fact that we took a break in order to do that and just show where everybody's actually coming from. I don't know if that's necessarily taking a side, because I, I all too often hear kind of a ridiculous argument that white people are being discriminated against, but <laughs> it's hard to be discriminated against when you are the majority group. But I can definitely say that this does highlight that there are some basically held prejudices against the majority group, which I, I think is fair to at least put in here and put a face to, even if it doesn't necessarily mean that they hold anything. Because I think prejudice and discrimination, you have to have a certain level of power in order to enact. And if you don't have any power, how can you really be discriminatory? Maybe that's ignorant on my part, and I'll, I'll open it up to the floor on that one. But I, I don't know. I, I think that is one of the unique flares of artistry on this movie, even though the way it's presented kind of seems like a modern art theater production in the way it's staged. Well, 
anybody who says that they aren't prejudiced or doesn't or don't hold some prejudice, let me just ask you this question. And this is something that I I don't know where I heard this or where I gained it. It's not something that I personally came up with. But if you're walking down a street and it's late at night and somebody approaches you and they happen to be of a different ethnic background than you, if you pause and actually adjust yourself as, a, as like you're going to anticipate something bad occurring, then there's an, a racial issue there. I mean, how many times do you have somebody who does that who happens to be of the same ethnicity as you and you don't react that way? It's the noted microaggression during a, I can't remember the exact term for it. Is it untrained or unknown bias? That's not right, but I, I can't remember the specific term. Either way, all right, let's let's go. As we continue to move through the rest of the categories, we're probably going to bring up more of this stuff. So I, I just, let's continue to kind of forward momentum through this. So best performance, for me, it's Spike Lee. I really don't have a problem with anybody else, but the amount of weight that he has to carry through this as far as vision as both the writer and director, and then as its primary star, even though I don't think that he's the most important character or the single best character as far as an actor, but you want to say from the other lifts that he carried in order to make the movie, I think this is his movie and it's his seminal work. I, I would agree with that. I do not have him as the best performer. My, I have him as the secondary performer because primarily the issue is him as director and writer. I don't think his character in the movie itself was that significant or pivotal. My best performer was Danny Aiello because he had such a subtlety. I mean, how many times, you know, these people love my pizza. He's giving money to Smiley. He's doing all the things that you would think, this guy really appreciates these people in the neighborhood. And yet there's a certain undercurrent. One, whenever somebody mentions the word boycott of his yeah. restaurant, I think the term boycott holds a lot different connotation in 1989, being only 20 years removed from a lot of the civil rights movement as opposed to now where boycott can literally mean we're just holding Delta Airlines accountable for dragging somebody off of one of their flights. But his ability to go from zero to 11 is quite notable. Yeah. And then to immediately go from 11 back down to six and then back to three. I mean, his his emotional range was just phenomenal. As somebody who was not a trained actor, who was basically a union rep, until the 1970s when he started doing a few bit pieces here and there. He's phenomenal. I, I, I didn't realize how great of an actor he really was. It's just natural to him. There's a certain group of people that have a knack for acting that you can't teach, that no matter uh, the amount of drama school, they just have an ability. He is one of those people. And for that matter... For the small part he had, Samuel L. Jackson was extremely memorable in this. I'm not saying he was the best performance or even the most charismatic, but it was clear 
from watching him that he had something there that was greater than the part he held. Who was your best secondary performer then? I had Spike Lee primarily for directing and writing because I I thought Mookie's character was... I had a hard time understanding what was going on with him half the time. The character itself was difficult, but the writing and the subtlety and the directing and how it was done and building tension and releasing tension and such, I thought uh, as a secondary performer, Spike Lee was phenomenal. I think his work behind the camera is usually a 9 or or 10. In front of the camera, not quite as significant. Well, the one thing I'll say, and this is the challenge for me, and it's possible that there's just a cultural barrier that I'm not capable of going beyond. I have had trouble relating to the character of Mookie. I just, I don't know if it's maybe my privilege that being a neighborhood pizza delivery guy, having a Latino girlfriend with a small child, then skipping out on them for a week was a character I'm not particularly able to connect with. And by extension, then I think that suffers as to how I can see myself in his shoes. Cause I think he is supposed to be the wide audience, but which character then are you, are you supposed to be able to put yourself in the shoes of? Like, obviously, nobody from the white community would want to necessarily put them, especially 30 years on, in the shoes of Pino, okay? (laughs) Yeah, I think, if anything, you might go with Vito or maybe Sal. I think Sal's probably the best conduit to a potential white audience. But I don't know. Maybe this is a character that's much more accessible for a black person that grew up like Spike Lee did. Maybe this is somebody that was regular to the neighborhood. And so, but it just doesn't make sense to me. And thus, I had a hard time with the complicated nature of his character. I didn't quite understand him or his motivations. And he seemed to go back and forth on just about every major decision within the movie. Actually, the most relatable for uh, a white audience is actually Demare. Ozzie Davis... Okay, that's an interesting... Yeah, is maybe African-American, but he's the voice of reason. He's the voice of just calm down. Let's talk about this rationally. Let's do the things that we need to. Let's de-emphasize the tension and the anger, and we'll work it out. It's hmm. an interesting thought. For my best secondary, though, I went with Danny Aiello. I agree with most of the points that you already made and the ones that I also emphasized, but... I did think this was, I mean, he's been a character actor for a long time, but I think this is by far his most notable performance, and it's rewarded with the only Oscar nomination he ever received. He just has an ability to place himself directly into this character and become this character in a way that I don't know if I could have seen from somebody like a Robert De Niro, where you have the rest of these characters that he's built on for years associated with him. The fact that he's a character actor and doesn't have these previous characters that you would draw upon, that he's kind of a blank slate to play with, and yet is capable of being caring about the community, recognizing that, yes, I'm in an all-black community, but I built this place with my own two hands. I'm a part of the community, even though I don't necessarily look like I'm part of the community, yet 
when the community rebels against me in a way that makes me ostracized, it makes me fight back and be on the defensive in a way that I don't think you would have been in some other situations. So his ability to play all of those roles almost independently, but as one character, I think needs to be credited. What he was, was is he was the minority. It flips the uh, majority-minority roles. Yeah. So, most charismatic award, I went with Ossie Davis. I think that he is the most, I don't know if it is relatable character, but certainly the one that, I guess, makes the most sense. It seems to be above all of these things, even though he's presented as a drunk throughout the movie or at least the first part of the movie, he seems to be the one who has the coolest head and always is looking out for his community. I guess that is why they call him Demare. I can understand that. I, I, I love Ozzie Davis, um, or I loved Ozzie Davis. He's been gone for a while, yeah. 17 years, I think, now. Yeah, he. Uh, one of his best friends apparently was uh, Burt Reynolds which is why when Burt Reynolds did a TV show in the late 80s or early 90s called Evening Shade, he was a key part of that show, and I loved that show. And um, Hal Holbrook on it and a bunch of other people that were all friends of Burt's and uh, such. But um, I always thought he was just phenomenal and I really enjoyed uh, his um, acting and his uh, presentations and such. But from a charismatic position i went with an actor who every time i have watched him in a film has just been in awe of his acting ability and the subtleties the facial expressions the eye movements the little glint here and there is john Turturro. He, he just has a knack for being able to portray a wide variation of characters and to do it in an incredibly impressive and significant way. It's just, he's just so good at it. You could see the seething rage at times in his facial expression. He didn't have to say anything. He didn't have to do anything. It wasn't like overt body language but you could read it within his facial expression and even how he looked around the room and how he presented his eyes. So I'm just going to go with that. John Turturro has one of the great honors that I think that you can bestow on a character actor. You know his name. Mm -hmm. There are very few other great character actors that you just know their name. Stanley Tucci. Stephen Root. He is to you and I, but I have a hard time remembering that, oh, yeah, his name is Stephen Root half the time. Well, to, or Totoro was in How, or Brother, How Great Thou Art. Which wow, is did you butcher that? Excuse me. Oh, Brother, Where Art Thou? Brother, how, Where Art Thou? And he's, he's played Billy Martin and Howard Cosell. Yes, because he has this, and uh, this was the part I was going to get to. As a character actor, he can play a Jew, he can play a Hungarian, he can play a Russian or an Eastern European of some variety, he can play an Italian-American. He just fits into so many of these different character shades. When you need a guy that looks slightly Middle Eastern who can appear Weasley at times or can be restrained, that's John Turturro. 
when you need somebody who talks a little bit funny, but you need to have some crazy eyes, you call Steve Buscemi. <laughs> yeah, okay. And that's the casting for every Corb Brothers movie. Okay. Anyway. Yes, I do love John Turturro. This isn't one of my favorite roles of his, because I don't think it's supposed to be, but, I mean, he did play uh, what something Jesus. I can't remember. Strike Jesus or something on uh, Big Lebowski? Anyway. <laughs> Best scene. I have nominated Fight the Power, Wall of Fame, Opening the Hydrant, Racial Monologues, Sal and Son's Famous Pizzeria, Boiling Point, Chokehold, Riot, Morning After. Any others that you'd like to nominate? I have the uh, Sal and Pino uh, in the uh, pizzeria, that whole scene, because actually that's one of my favorites. It, it deviates from the general concept of race and racial relations and shifts the focus on something else, which is the relationship of father and son regarding business and family business. But I think it actually has a more important role in that it asks one of the questions that the audience has been asking for most of the movie, but hasn't gotten an answer to. Why is an Italian-American owning a pizzeria in the middle of a predominantly black neighborhood? And even if he started there, why hasn't he left? Yeah, and I, I think that ultimately covers it. So, all right, out of all of these, what do you think is the best scene? I like that scene, but ultimately my the best scene is the climactic scene. It's the conversation between Mookie er, and Sal. Because even at that point, Sal's lost everything, and he's angry. And everything he's built himself with his own two hands is he's screaming. He's lost. But even at that point in time, they start talking in general about the weather and what's going on. Because even despite all of the bitterness, the anger, the hostility, the circumstances, there's a certain feeling or respect or love towards each other that they're able to at least start to talk more civilly and beyond the circumstances. That, that's the part where they start talking about the weather. I'm like, you've just been through hell. And you both feel completely betrayed, and yet you're going to have a general conversation that's more genteel and friendly. And that so emphasized to me some of the subtleties that exist in race relations. I also agree. I found that that was my best scene for one specific reason. I think it would have been all too easy to stop at the rioting and just let that kind of hang as the power of the moment. But I think it's actually a better ending to have, okay, we have our moments of anger. We have our moments of riot. It's the moments where we have to react in the aftermath that are going to be the defining moments of how we move forward in a way that we recognize this is going to be a continuing ongoing issue, but how do we move forward with each other in at least a coexistence? And to a certain extent, for two characters that, while they've been at odds at different times, they have this kind of 
tit-for-tat, somewhat loving, arm-length kind of relationship, where Sal, at one point in the movie, even calls him somewhat of a son right before everything explodes. Yeah. So there, there is some love there, or at least we're led to believe that, at least from Sal's point of view toward Mookie, even though we don't necessarily understand the Mookie relationship. But there is kind of a small throwaway line within that that I found fascinating. And it's, Mookie, Sal, I need to go see my son, if that's okay with you. As, like, he's still his employer and he needs to ask permission in order to do that, even though there's no chance of him actually working that day. Yeah. So I found that to be kind of interesting. And again, I think there's the small ways in which they relate to each other, even though they have this prior relationship that's been built. How do you come back from the incident of everything that's been going on there with basically one of the defining moments of this neighborhood? So favorite scene for me, I don't know if I have one particular favorite scene. I wrote down the riot just because I think it has a lot of significance to it. And I think that's the most interesting scene to kind of dissect as far as where everybody's staged and how it kind of boils over in a way that you don't necessarily expect. And even though it's continuing to go on, it just takes kind of some unusual turns. I thought even the ending part of that scene where it's Smiley putting up the picture of Martin and Malcolm in the, well, I guess in the metaphorical wall of fame at that point, because the rest of it had all burned down was kind of telling in that situation. And I thought it was actually a good add on for them since that scene clearly was not in the original script by what we said in the, did you know, I thought that that by far has the most interesting parts to it, even if it isn't necessarily the best or most developed scene. My, again, my best scene or my favorite scene was cell and, uh, and Pino simply because sometimes it's difficult for people to understand why businesses are what they're doing, what they want their families to take over the relationship between father and son and all of that. I I just thought that scene was spoke larger than the film. And most indelible moment, again, I, I think I mentioned it before, but it's the morning after for me. I just find that last scene between the two characters that are the primary ones that drive this movie is the most striking thing from this movie that I remember. Mine is the uh, chokehold and the riot. How quickly things can change, how events can turn, how history can pivot on a momentary action or inaction and become irreversibly altered. Well, and I think it's notable that the beginning of that scene or the final launching action of that scene is he's allowing the kids, even though they'd closed, in for a slice after they've closed because he wants to be kind to them. That's when the other guys pop in and start to provoke him. And that's what causes the rising action that eventually becomes the undoing and everything explodes from there is had he said no, that we're closed. None of that happens. I know that's the tragedy. All right. We'll take another quick break and we will be right back. 
Welcome back. Thank you for rejoining us. Dad, before we go any further, are there some people we need to remember this week? Yes, uh, several. Leonard Fenton, 95, a British actor, was, was best known for playing Wolford's original GP, Dr. Harold Legg, appearing on the BBC soap for its very first episode in 1985. His career in acting spanned over 50 years and saw him appear in over 267 episodes of EastEnders. He appeared in uh, Robin Hood Jr. in 1975, Give My Regards to Broad Street in 1984, and the British horror film The Zombie Diaries in 2006. Carlton Carpenter, an American uh, actor-singer, was an MGM contract player who partnered with Debbie Reynolds to perform the hit song Abba Dabba Honeymoon in the romantic musical Two Weeks with Love. After starring in Broadway with opposite the likes of Angela Lansbury, Ray Bolger, and Hermione uh, Gingold, the uh, lanky carpenter was uh, signed by MGM, which quickly assigned him to Summerstock, uh, 1950, starring Gene Kelly and uh, Judy Garland. Garland uh, caused so many delays, and Carpenter was able to squeeze in work in Farther and the Bride, playing one of Elizabeth Taylor's suitors. And Three Little Words, in which he was first paired with Reynolds. Carpenter also appeared with Burt Lancaster in Vengeance Valley in 1951, with Dorothy Gish in Robert Seedmark's the Whistle of Eden Falls in 1951, and with Richard Widmark in Richard Brooks' Take the High Ground, 1953, and with James Gardner in Up Periscope in 1959. Carpenter made his first film debut in producer Louis de Romachemont's Controversial Lost Boundaries in 1949 about a black family who passes for white. He returned to New York at the end of his MGM contract to appear in Almanac and played Cornelius in the Mary Martin Company of Hello, Dolly, which toured throughout the U.S. and Far East, including entertaining troops in Vietnam at the height of the war. Carpenter also performed in hundreds of radio and TV shows in 1949. In 1946, he was a regular in CBS's campus Hoopla. Calvin Remsburg, 72 American actor, was well known as both actor and director on both coasts. He started out as an opera star and quickly made his way to musical theater. Over the course of his life, he directed four productions of Sweeney Todd, including a 1999 Los Angeles production starring Kelsey Grammer and uh, Christine Baranski. He also uh, notably portrayed the Beatle in the first national tour of Sweeney Todd with Angela Lansbury in 1980. He appeared in the television production as the Beatle. Robert Wall, 82, was an American martial artist and actor. He was the martial artist master who acted with Chuck Norris and Bruce Lee. Wall appeared in The Way of the Dragon, Enter the Dragon, and The Game of Death with superstar Bruce Lee. The two who knew each other well and went full speed during an iconic fight scene in Ender the Dragon, which ended with Lee victorious and Wall with several broken ribs. Wall appeared in 14 episodes of Walker, Texas Ranger, and action films uh, Code of Silence and Invasion USA with Norris as well. J. 
John William Galt, 81, American voice actor, was uh, the actor who portrayed Lo Wang in the original Shadow Warrior game. Galt's career began in 1958 after winning an Air Force talent contest, which saw him touring with the National Forces Network. Galt's first credit was on the Paper Moon TV series in 1974. Highlights included roles on Walker, Texas Ranger, and playing the voice of several U.S. presidents in Forrest Gump and JFK. Most recently, Galt played several roles on the Cyanide and Happiness show. Donald May, 92, spent a decade or more than uh 2,800 episodes portraying the crusading attorney Adam Drake on the ABC CBS daytime drama The Edge of Night. The handsome May also played newspaper reporter Pat Garrison on the 1960-62 ABC drama The Roaring Twenties. Just one of many gigs he landed on Warner Brothers TV shows early in his career. May was also one half of an early daytime super couple with Mauve McGuire, who played Nicole Travis before his run on the show abruptly ended when Adam was gunned down from behind while sitting alone in his office. May also showed up on episodes of Combat, the FBI, Fantasy Island, The Facts of Life, Dallas, Falcon Crest, Mama's Family, and L.A. Law, and in films including The Crowded Sky, a Tiger Walks, Kisses for My President, Follow Me Boys, and Robert Altman's O.C. and The Stigs. Moses Mosley, 31, worked on The Walking Dead from 2012 to 2015 and portrayed one of the zombies that followed character... Okay, one of the characters, McConey, played by Denai Guerrero. Other acting work included his appearances in The Hunger Games, Catching Fire and Queen of the South and Watchmen. Josie Appel, 93, American actress, made more than 150 radio and television commercials, print ads, and industrial films in uh, New York City. She had a brief role in the TV show The Guiding Light. In feature film, she was in All Roads Lead Home with Peter Coyote and Peter Boyle and had cameo roles in Ang Lee's Ride with the Devil and Woody Allen's Radio Days. Monica Vitti, 90, was an Italian cinema icon and muse to legendary director Michelangelo Antonioni, was best known for her roles in the 1950s and 60s, particularly Antonioni's collaborations La Ventura and La Note. Morgan Stevens, 70, American actor, was best known for his role as David Reardon, a teacher on the popular TV show Fame from 1982. He was also a recurring character in Melrose Place for seven episodes, playing Nick Diamond in 1995. Stevens had roles on A Year in the Life, Murder, She Wrote, and the original version of One Day at a Time. His last appearance was on Walker, Texas Ranger in 1999. In 1991, he won an out-of-court settlement in a police brutality lawsuit against LAPD. He claimed he was beaten by two officers after a minor traffic incident. And lastly, Howard Hessman, 81, American actor, played the radio disc jockey 
Dr. Johnny Fever on the sitcom WKRP in Cincinnati. The actor turned history teacher Charlie Moran head of the class. Hessman, who had uh, himself been a radio DJ in the 1960s, won two Emmy nominations for playing Johnny Fever on CBS's WKRP in Cincinnati, which ran for four seasons from 1978 to 1982. The role made Hessman a counterculture icon at the time when few hippie characters made it onto network TV. Hessman played a hippie in one of his first roles on Dragnet in 1967 and was also in the 1968 Richard Lester film, Betulia. Born in Lebanon, Oregon, Hessman wasn't so disconnected with some of his characters he played. In 1983, he told People magazine that he had conducted pharmaceutical experiments and recreational chemistry. In 1963, he was jailed in San Francisco for selling marijuana. Hessman appeared briefly but memorably with McKeon in the 1984 rockumentary, This is Spinal Tap, as Terry Ladd, manager to the rock superstar Duke Fame. In the ABC sitcom, Head of the Class, which debuted in 1986, Hessman played a teacher to a diverse group of students in a classroom where the dialogue was often notably progressive in the 1980s of Ronald Reagan. Hessman was sometimes critical of the show, co-created by political activist and writer Michael Elias, not being as adventurous as he had hoped it would be. He departed after four seasons and was replaced by Billy Connolly in the fifth and final season. A prolific character actor, Hessman's credits also included The Andy Griffith Show, One Day at a Time, The Rockford Files, Laverne and Shirley, The Bob Newhart Show. He made appearances in that 70s show, Fresh Off the Boat, House, and Boston Legal. Films included Place Academy at Two, their final assignment about Schmidt and The Rocker. We take a moment of silence here in their honor. Thank you. All right, let's move to best funniest lines. There really aren't any funny lines in this movie. I mean, I got a couple of chuckles here and there, but not like from anything quippy. So I'll just get the first one right out of the way. Demare, always do the right thing. Uh, Mookie, Dago, Wop, Guinea, Garlic Breath, Pizza Slingin', Spaghetti, Bendin', Vic Damone, Perry Como, Lucia Pavarotti, Sola Mio, non-singing motherfucker. I'm curious why you decided to use the racial ones. I steered away from them specifically. Because I think they're necessary to, if you're going to quote the film. Right, but I think it it requires context and just reading it as a quote, it doesn't, well. I, I don't see how you can avoid them. I understand. Well, whatever. Doesn't matter. All right, my next one up. Pino, who's your favorite basketball player? Magic Johnson. And who's your favorite movie star? Eddie Murphy. And who's your favorite rock star? Prince. You're a Prince freak. Boss. Bruce. Prince. Bruce. Pino, all you ever talk about is end this and end that. And all your favorite people are so-called ends. It's different. Magic, Eddie, Prince are not ends. I mean, they're not black. I mean, let me explain myself. They're 
they're not really black. I mean, they're black, but they're not really black. They're more than black. It's different. It's different? Yeah, to me, it's different. The mayor, after last night's riot, hope the block is still standing. Mother, sister, we're still standing. ML. Well, gentlemen, the way I see it, if this hot weather continues, it's going to melt the polar caps and the whole wide world, and all the parts that ain't water already will surely be flooded. Coconut Sid. You're a simple motherfucker. Now, where you read this shit, eh? Polar caps? ML. Don't worry about it, but when it happens, and I'm in my boat, and your black asses are drowning, don't call for me to throw you no rope, no lifesaver, or nothing. Sweet Dick Willie. You fool, you're 30 cents away from having a quarter. Where the fuck you gonna get a boat? Predicting global warming in 1989. I don't have anything else. I didn't either. Alright, let's go to the Stanley rubric then. This is going to be a potentially tricky one to try and grade out because I really don't know what the context is around this except through other people. And I think this is one that has a lot of controversy surrounding it, both at the time and in its legacy. But I'll go 4.5 for audience. It resonates with a lot of the industry, but it still has its detractors. I mean, this is a controversial movie, and I still think there are people that have not warmed to black relations, particularly within the industry and different opportunities. And Spike Lee is seen as somewhat of an aggravator within the industry. So I'll go with a 4.5. For the audience, I'll go with a 3.5. It resonates with the progressive and minority communities. And I'm sure this movie was probably viewed more often now in the last couple of years or even in the last decade by a wider audience than it had been before that, but it's still not going to play to a lot of spots of middle America that has an inability to relate to this in a way that you and I do. Well, excuse me, in a, in the similar way that you and I have an inability to relate to this. And we've already mentioned it at the top that it's somewhat of a difficult film. It's inner city, New York, it's in racially homogenous neighborhoods or ones that have pockets of high ethnic minority groups. And it doesn't necessarily play well to central Wisconsin, central Kansas, middle Wyoming, you know, random places like that where there are pockets where I would explore that if they saw a racial minority, they'd be covering it on the local news. So I'm going to go with a 3.5 for that, and uh, I guess that ends at an 8. For Legacy, I had a, um, I, I think this is held in a, among the um, industry is kind of a benchmark. And I mean, it should be. I mean, <laughs> this film is as relevant in 1989 as it would be in 2019 or 2022. So I think it's got a five, but it's not a film that resonates with the majority of the population. I, I think you'd be hard-pressed for a large portion, especially among white America, to indicate that they have any concept of what the film is. I, 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 I give it some simply because, you know, people who are on the knowledge of films and watch films and whatever would. So I went with a three from uh, the public for an eight. 
So roughly kind of about the same scoring, just slightly altered to end at the exact same score. We both had an eight, so the average on this one's pretty easy. But I, I, I think that from an audience standpoint, it's not even so much as that this doesn't resonate. And I'll give a percentage of that. But there's also a lot of people that think that, and, and I don't necessarily want to give it complete voice, but even in the wake of what we've had over the last couple of years, probably still think that this is not actually a thing, that this is over-dramatized. Okay. I'm just mentioning no, I, it. For, I understand. So I, I don't want to say that this is, this might even be the majority opinion now or the accepted majority opinion, but there are going to be enough detractors, at least from a statistically significant standpoint, that would challenge that. And so I do think that, unfortunately, is the enduring part of what on what this is going to be. Impact significance, I unfortunately had to go lower than this because, really, I think the industry kind of froze this out. I think it had a couple of its champions that really got on the stump for this movie. Notably, we mentioned Kim Basinger, but you also said Siskel and Ebert, who kind of banged the drum for this movie. And I think among certain critics, this was seen as, okay, we now have a really good film from a black director that speaks to a uncomfortable situation and topic that we're not familiar with or don't have good sources to draw upon. And this can now be the centralized, focused narrative that we can show people to help stir conversation or do some other things. And I don't think that the industry was necessarily ready for this. I think it got kind of 50-50 reviews. It only had the two nominations. I think in hindsight, it gets a lot more high praise than it did at the time where I think a lot of things that are ahead of their time, and I do think that this movie was well ahead of its time, just was never going to get its complete due. So I ended at a three for the industry. I mean, this famously is still one of the most controversial Oscar decisions. The fact that we gave it to Driving Miss Daisy and is constantly compared when we award new films like The Green Book, the White Savior movies, as being the most notable case of that. But for the audience, I couldn't find much for the public reception of this movie. I really don't know if anybody really knew that this was a major movie or significant movie in 1989. I think it's grown in stature since then, but I'll give it a two because I can't imagine that the public perception of this movie was that great if the industry couldn't get its arms around it. I mean, if Hollywood's not celebrating you know, progressive issues and cultural and notable diversity, then how the hell is middle America or just Joe Public supposed to put its arms around this? So it ends at a five for me. The uh, industry itself was conflicted. And I think it was about as conflicted within the industry as the issue itself. So if we're giving five <laughs> for the industry, the fact is, is I think there was as much for as against. So I went with the 2.5 and split it. And as far as impact and significance... At the time, I'll be honest, you know, I, I, as I've indicated, I was busy and my life was hectic and whatever, but this is not something that was readily discussed. I had kind of not a big idea of who Spike Lee was 
even until the early 90s when I'm watching NBA games and he's sitting on the front court of the Knicks, etc., and is getting into a shouting match with Reggie Miller. And at the time, I'm like, okay, I'm not 100% familiar. So I'm going with a 1.5 for that. So I'm going with a, a 4 on this simply because having lived through that time frame, even even being busy and life was hectic and whatever, I wasn't so obtuse that I didn't know kind of what was going on culturally. And I don't think this had a big impact on the culture itself. The one place that I would say, and that maybe I could bring you up to a five, is the amount of people that this was a significant launching pad for. I mean, the cast list names him as Sam Jackson, not Samuel L. Jackson. But within the next seven to eight years, he becomes kind of a megastar by the time we hit Pulp Fiction and Die Hard with a Vengeance. You talk about Rosie Perez is in White Men Can't Jump after this, and she's kind of gone on to a her own acting career. Ossie Davis got a bunch of other additional roles. There were a lot of character actors or small time people that ended up having this as kind of their spurring of their careers because, okay, you were in this and now we'll give you some other bigger expanded roles and then you'll use that as additional. So I don't know if this was all of their first roles. I don't know if it was Martin Lawrence's, but using this, I mean, Giancarlo Esposito, he's kind of a known actor or a known quantity since his appearances primarily on both Better Call Saul and Breaking Bad. But he's a guy that I think most people would recognize. And he's had a lot of disparate character roles up until those primary starring vehicles. But this is these are a lot of people you know that you start going through the roster. John Turturro. I've seen, I can't remember his name right now, but the guy who plays Vito, I've seen him in a bunch of random stuff. You know, the, the, these are people that have been in the industry probably for 20, 30 years that this might have been their first movie or one of their first movies. I understand. And I will give... You don't a, have to move it up. It's a it's a 4.5 average between us as it currently sits. I'm just all right. trying to throw it in as a, an additional consideration because I agree with you. I mean, it's hard for me to note what it was at the time in the similar way that you could, but... I know the, the industry was conflicted. It's why I ended up at a three that I thought that's kind of splitting the difference. I guess 2.5 really is the middle mark for that. But yeah, it's it's definitely a controversial movie and had a, a lot of its detractors at the time that I can't argue with. Novelty wise, though, I mean, this is before Rodney King. It was not necessarily new to the black community, but it was a semi-mainstream movie highlighting police brutality in a way that mainstream America had not seen up to that point, or at least was not presented or challenged with. Not to mention that, and I keep pushing this button, as far as creativity, we we focus so much uh, as novelty being original or creative, but this is pointed to as the single best race relations movie that we have to this point, And as this point of view that doesn't take a direct stance, but doesn't provide the cliches that we normally see in race relations movies with a white, uh, white friend or white savior complex. So I gave it a 10. I agree. 
to be perfectly honest, I thought about this. I sat, I uh, was scoring this over my lunch, and I was sitting at my desk contemplating, and I went through all of the films that I'm familiar with and whatever, and um, I, I could not think of a film that touched on the subject as eloquently and as clearly as this had in anything I could come up with. So I had to go with a 10. Classicness, this is still as relevant now as it was then, if not more so, with the context of the last few years as we keep remembering and, re- and emphasizing over and over and over during this, this show. The only point that I would have down for this is the kind of unnecessary nude scene that Rosie Perez said that she had gone on record as opposing for being uncomfortable with and said that you don't see her face in the scene because she's crying off camera, but she's done some other nude scenes. I I don't know. It's, It's tough to judge where she's at and where this scene was at, but I thought it was kind of an odd and somewhat uncomfortable nude scene that just seems out of place in the middle of the movie. It's the one area where I could say this has no bearing on the rest of it. But as far as the race relations, the police brutality, the racial relations in an gentrified neighborhood, all of that still fits. So do you give it a half point down for the weird, uncomfortable sexual nature of that one scene or a full point? I guess I ended at a nine, but I could probably be brought up to a 9.5. Well, we're right on point, which is I'm at a 9.5, which is... I'm like, what the fuck? Why, why is this even here? <laughs> I mean, are you trying to like, okay, well, we have to have some gratuitous sex scene in here to try to market it? I mean, you're already in an R rating, so what difference does it make? I mean, I, I, I... If anything, it adds to the nature of it's a really hot day by doing that scene and trying to emphasize a cooling down type of thing but i don't know it just i can see why it sounds better in theory than it was in practice so i'll leave it at my nine so that'll take it to a 9.25 which is where i think it probably should be rewatchability i know you're probably going to be much lower on this than me because you're probably going to have a lot more difficult time trying to watch something like this but i do find this actually a more enjoyable rewatch the second time I've seen it, just because I think there are more pieces to kind of dissect and the small little parts that I can really focus in on, on certain acting performances or uh, certain tensions, how things fit together. It's much more of a scientific approach to how I watch the movie. And so that's made it a little bit more enjoyable. So I actually find it to be an eight. It has a lot of forward momentum. It's under two hours it isn't really beyond the pale as far as pushing white guilt, at least not more than we have been for the last couple of years. So I went with an eight. I'm going to throw out a term. It's one of the terms or words that I live my life by. It's autodidactic. means self-learner. I'm a firm believer that you never should stop learning, trying to digest, improve, The minute you stop trying to educate yourself about the ways of the world of what exists, you start to die. I mean, physically you die, but if you don't continue to grow 
emotionally, intellectually, you die. This is a film that I probably need to watch on at least a year-by-year basis, just to remind myself. I mean, we're talking about a 33 or 32, 33-year-old film that has, it could be released tomorrow, and it would be as poignant then or to then or tomorrow as it was 33 years ago. Well, except for the references to Dwight Gooden and Roger Clemens. Well, quite frankly, considering the Hall of Fame voting, you could probably still even reference Dwight Gooden and Roger Clemens, but then you'd have to insert drugs and alcohol and... Uh, Potential steroid usage? And performance-enhancing drugs. Otherwise, you could still do the same. Well, okay, um, hold on. How are drugs and alcohol not a performance-enhancing substance for some players? Well, they could also be a performance deter- or detrimental. They could be, but some players survive on them. So, But anyway, what's your score? <laughs> well, for that matter, in Ball 4, there's a story about Mickey Mantle, and he's so hungover, he goes up and he hits a ball out of the park, and Jim Bowden, who wrote the book Ball 4, said, Mickey, how did you manage to do that? He goes, I don't know. I just aimed at the center ball. Did Doc Ellis also pitch an entire complete game on LSD? Yes, he did. No, no, complete game. Try a no-hitter. I said perfect game. Oh, excuse me. I misheard then. Maybe it was a no-hitter, but either one. One of the two on LSD. Anyway, what's your score? I have a seven. Okay. So that's a 7.5 average between us. So audience score on this one, we had an 86% for Google users. We had an 89% for Rotten Tomato users. That averages out to an 8.75 for our scoring purposes. So let's recap. We had an 8 for Legacy. We had a 4.5 for Impact Significance. We had a 10 for Novelty. We had a 9.25 for Classicness. We had a 7.5 for Rewatchability. And we had an 8.75 for Audience Score. And that adds up to 48 total. Okay. And currently that would place it between Goodfellas and Casino Royale on the list. Kind of about midway. Okay. Kind of difficult films to compare against this. Yes. So remaining questions then, did you have any? Well, I'm just going to quote myself, which is oddly done, but... I finished the film this morning, and I texted you. And I think I want to put this as part of the record because I think it summarizes the difficulty I personally had. My text was is as follows. I have no fucking idea what to do about this movie. If I say what I think, I'm a white guy who doesn't understand. If I say something else, I'm talking about a point of view I don't know or understand. During the pandemic, John Cleese did a lecture series that I paid to watch. And in there, he talked about professionalism and such. And he came to the conclusion that only about 10% of people who are in any profession understand or know what they're talking about. And he also came to the conclusion based on studies that only about 10% of the profession understand that they don't know everything about their subject. 
for, or fortunately or unfortunately, the same 10% who know what they're talking about are also the, about the same 10% who understand that they don't know everything. And so I would take pride in the fact that I do not understand race relations and can acknowledge that I am a work in process trying to understand better what's going on, but I will never completely simply because I am a middle-aged white guy who has had all the advantages and privileges that come with it. Yes, I came from lower middle class family and built up, but the road has been much easier than those others. And I will admit that. And I, I can never completely grasp what's going on. The, la the remaining question is, are we going to continue to try to understand this? Are we going to just accept that we don't understand this? Where are we going as a society, as a political entity? Where are we going with this whole concept? Is this something we're going to try to, to continue, or is this going to just be something we just pass off as being, man, eh, well, whatever? Well, I think part of this is the shifting nature that I seem to have on what my responsibility is supposed to be as this person. Do I simply understand it? Am I supposed to somehow improve the situation? What exactly is my role in trying to make things better? That's the part that I find difficult because I think when you ask one person, it's one thing. And when you ask somebody else, it's something completely different. So that's why I think this conversation is much more difficult. And that's not to say that both people can't potentially be right. I just, I find it very difficult to understand, okay, I want to do something, but what is it that I'm responsible for doing in order to make a difference? And that's, that's where it is. Because, I mean, realistically, I have almost no general power over the police or police brutality, I come in very little, if any, contact with a lot of racial minorities, even though I now live in a much more urban setting than I, at least what I was. It's still not like I'm not in the middle of Chicago or something. But even so, what is it exactly that I'm supposed to be doing? And if that could become somehow clearer, I think you'd be able to have a more centralized progression, if that makes any sense. So uh, as far as other remaining questions I had, I'll ask the one that apparently all the white people ask, since we are two white guys discussing this movie. Did Mookie do the right thing? <laughs> uh, this is the problem I have, because... So I, I think this is the reflection of what your thought is about him throwing the trash can at the end of the movie. I've seen it twice and both times before I read this, I just assumed he's trying to direct people's anger at a physical object and away from Sal. And I think you kind of see some of that at the end of the movie, even though he has the confrontation with Sal. And yet I can also see where he's also upset at everything. And he takes the side of his community as opposed to his employer. So I don't know. Is it the right thing? Is it the wrong thing? Does it really even matter? Is there a right thing? 
you don't have to answer. I won't put you on the spot. I, 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 I don't know. I mean, if I'm Sal, I'm not going to, like, take my baseball bat and beat the beatbox into submission. I, I'm going to say, leave my establishment, or I'm calling the police because you're trespassing. I don't know. He seemed ready to deal with it himself with the baseball bat on many occasions throughout the course of the movie. I know. Is it the best response? No, but, you know. And then I'll ask the other question that's kind of derived from the end of the movie by showing both sides of the non-violent leader versus the violence is justified leader. Is violence just? And I don't think there is any one answer on this. It's in the Bible. Does right or does uh, might make right? I don't remember that actually being part of the Bible. I think that's more. It is. It's. It is, and it was actually then contained within a speech by Abraham Lincoln. And it is. When does anger become justified? Well, I think that's one of the things that I always struggled with when when we're talking about like Sunday school and such. And I remember asking this question, I think it was of Pastor Bauer at the time, but how is it that your temper and anger are sins, but Christ could flip over the tables in the temple and it not be a problem? It was righteous anger. Exactly. And that's the supposed thing. But where does righteous anger differ from just regular anger? So I don't know. I I won't even put it on a spirituality point of view. I tend to side more with King as opposed to Malcolm just because I've seen the nonviolent methodology work or be more effective more often than I have the violent nature. And so if the whole point is justice is progress and moving forward and getting the receipts in the end, I do find that that is the more effective strategy. I don't know if that makes any difference to whether it's just or not. I think that there is justifiable defense. But again, I don't think that every situation where we say it's justifiable self-defense is actually self-defense. Like if you go and provoke somebody and then they come after you after they've been provoked, is that really then self-defense? I don't know. All right. I I won't put you on the spot anymore with these abstract questions. So final thoughts for the week, other than what you've already stated. My head hurts. Good. I don't really have any major ones. I can't remember the last time. I think the last time I saw Guess Who's Coming to Dinner was uh, probably about 10 years ago when I was in college. And I remember really liking the film. So it'll be interesting to go back and watch that one. And it's nice that we uh, have our going-to-be-sixth-time-returning guest uh, back on the show. But uh, outside of that, nothing huge for me. Just um, I'm glad we're stretching ourselves and challenging ourselves with some movies that necessarily aren't ones that we would normally pick. I watched the film five, six years ago. The Sunday New York Times book section, which is always where I start on Sunday mornings with the Times, always start with that because it at least gets me in a frame to tackle the rest of the Times on Sundays. 
um, was a book that was discussing film and film transition in 1967. Old uh, Hollywood versus new Hollywood, which was uh, Guess Who's Coming to Dinner, Dr. Doolittle, Heat of the Night, Bonnie and Clyde, The Graduate. And I read the book and proceeded to embark on a several-week quest where we watched each of those films. So that was the last time I saw Guess Who's Coming to Dinner. All right. That's as good a place to leave it as any. Where are you headed, cowboy? Nowhere special? Nowhere special. I always wanted to go there. Next week, we welcome back our most often recurring guest to the show, my mother, Chris Duncan, to help with our second Black History Month film and to celebrate the late Sidney Poitier with Guess Who's Coming to Dinner from 1967. Directed by Stanley Kramer, starring Sidney Poitier, Spencer Tracy, and Katherine Hepburn. You won't want to miss that one, so watch ahead of the show by searching the Real Good app to find where it's streaming for you. That's R-E-E-L-G-O-O-D. Please like, follow, rate, and review, or whatever on whichever platform you have so that more can join in on our fun. You can also email the show at greatestalltimemoviepodcast at gmail.com. Find us on Instagram, Twitter, or TikTok at the handle Podcast. That's G-M-O-A-T podcast. The Greatest Movie of All Time is a production of Ronnie Duncan Studios. Our show is mixed, edited, and written by Thomas Duncan. Our music is thanks to Purple Planet Music. Our technical provider and distributor is Captivate FM.